One single bacterium alone may be small and harmless, but on today's episode of Hooked on Science, we'll be learning about how bacteria can use strength in numbers to benefit a single organism or an entire ecosystem. Welcome to Hooked on Science, a podcast where we learn about cool research that you should know about. I'm your host, Julia Cubans. Today I'm joined by Dr. Jeremy Chacon, who is a research associate in the Department of Ecology, Evolution, and Behavior at the University of Minnesota. Jeremy, thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me, Julia. Jeremy, I know that you have a few different facets to the research that you conduct, but all of your expertise falls under this umbrella of ecology. So what is ecology? Well, Julia, it's a hard thing to answer, but I, I feel like put simply, ecology is the study of interactions between living things, other living things, and their environment. But I also think that that really undersells it. So, for example, I, I personally think ecology is the most important subfield of biology <laughs> because ecology is where the selection part of natural selection happens. And therefore, ecology, in my opinion, is really the cause of all of the myriad fascinating achievements of life. So how did you first become interested in ecology? Did you grow up building terrariums or watching fish in streams? Sure. You know, I definitely did both of those things, catching crayfish and just many different insects and really whatever I could. But I took a path that I feel like a lot of biologists or, or ecologists take. You know, I loved dinosaurs at a very young age and that transitioned to marine biology for a while. And that just kept transitioning through system after system. And I realized, I suppose, that the common thread was how all of these things interact. And, and it was really those interactions that I was most interested in. You know, what's something eating? What eats it? Uh, what else wants the same food or home? What diseases attack these things? How fast do they grow? Do they facilitate each other's growth or share? Why do they share? And I thought those questions were super interesting, and especially because they are what drove the evolution of each of these species in turn. I mean, it sounds like there are so many questions, which is perfect for anyone who is in research. We love having questions. But what made you decide to pursue a career in ecology research? I have always really wanted to do science. I think that it, it really captures an intersection of many of my different interests. Uh, for one, science is a really creative field. You really have to be able to think out of the box. And I've always loved doing creative things, whether that's writing music or drawing or, you know, that kind of thing. But then it, it's also very structured and, and you're learning real things that not only contribute to humanity's study of life, but also will help humanity. And so those things drew me to science in general. And my, my path then led me through science and I just started working in labs. First, a, uh, a limnology labs studying um, both fish and uh, also frog deformations and then also zooplankton biology in lakes. Uh, and that took me over to insects and birds for a while, back to insects for my PhD, and then now microbes for what's been about eight years. Wow, it sounds like you have gotten to jump around quite a bit and learn lots of different things. Do you ever get to intertwine some of your creative pursuits with your research pursuits? Not so much in uh, necessarily making art of my um, science or anything like that. I haven't yet gotten the courage to participate in, for example, Dance Your Thesis or any of those really fun competitions. But I do think that a lot of it just comes out even when you're talking to, about science to, to people that just want to know or, or even when you're writing your science for other scientists. Um, 
a creative turn of the phrase can really help your your science shine through your your scientific writing. Sure, I I definitely agree. So one thing that you're investigating is how species interact, which I'm sure you could make some cool murals out of if you wanted to. But why is it important to understand more about these species interactions? Sure. So on the one side, like I was mentioning, it's really important to know how species are interacting to understand why individual species um, evolved the way that they they did and are continuing to do. But it, it also goes the other way, where there are so many questions that we as humans have about why, for example, ecosystems function the way they do. Maybe we want to get rid of an invasive species, or maybe we want to help some other species thrive. Maybe you want a healthy gut microbiome or a healthy agricultural farm. To get at any of these sort of answers, we really need to understand ecology, how different species, whether they're microbes, plants, animals, how they all interact with each other, and how those interactions synergize to create or to destroy ecosystems. Okay, so all of these species are interacting within an ecosystem. Can you quickly define what an ecosystem is? I I think uh, that is actually a pretty good definition right there. It's sort of all of these species which are interacting with each other, usually in some sort of restricted environmental space that has a certain amount of light and, and water and temperature. So it's all those species interactions. And, and the, it's hard because no one ecosystem is ever truly isolated from other ecosystems. Even if you're talking about like an island ecosystem, it's still connected to other ecosystems. But usually you try to define it in a way that helps you answer a question, I suppose, or ask a question. So if I'm thinking about the gut microbiome, I'll be thinking about all of the bacteria that live inside someone's intestines, as well as the cells of the human that both take nutrients from those microbes, as well as give them back. And then the the temperature and the lack of oxygen and, and all of those sorts of things. Okay. So it sounds like an ecosystem can really be applied to any environment, big or small, across a broad a broad variety of contexts. Absolutely. So what organisms or ecosystems do you look at in your research? These days, I'm mostly focused on bacterial ecosystems. So I'm really focused on looking at how different bacteria interact with each other, often in a relatively small location, whether that's inside of a small little shaking one centimeter by one centimeter by one centimeter flask or on the surface of an agar petri dish. Um, And then also thinking a a bit about how those interactions that I study in those conditions will extrapolate to to be the same or not the same in, for example, in a plant or or in the human or some other situation. Okay, so I know that bacteria are are very small, but that's about all I know about bacteria. What what are bacteria? What do they do? Yeah, so bacteria are the most diverse kind of life on Earth. They are alive, and bacteria all, usually you think about them as being single-celled organisms. They have a, uh, a genome, just like humans or any other form of life has a genome, so a sequence of DNA which contains genes which describe what they can do. And uh, they are different than humans or fungi or plants. We split off from them on the evolutionary tree billions of years ago, though we do share a common ancestor if we go back far enough. So 
These bacteria, if they're so small, you said single-celled organisms, how do they work to influence their environments? Is it just in numbers or could one bacteria really facilitate a lot of changes? That's such a great question. And we are still trying to answer that right now. But a lot of what they do, it is in numbers and they do it through so such interesting ways. Some of it is pretty you can kind of understand it just based on thinking about what bacteria eat. So just like us, bacteria need to get energy somehow, and most of them are heterotrophic. So that means that they need to eat something to get energy from the thing that they've eaten, as opposed to getting it from the sun or from directly from a chemical form like, like some do. But that means that they're eating. And so bacteria might interact with each other by both of them wanting to eat the same sugar, for example, um, or the same nitrogen source. They might even facilitate each other, and that's one of the things that a lot is how one bacteria might eat something like a sugar and basically poop out a waste product to itself, something like an organic acid like vinegar or acetate, that then a different kind of bacteria might be able to eat. So that's a different sort of interaction, which is going to influence how many bacteria can coexist in an ecosystem. And as they're doing this, they're, of course, changing their environment as well. You brought up numbers. And I think that's such a cool thing to think about because a lot of the times when they're trying to affect a larger organism like a plant or an animal, they really can't do it all by themselves. A lot of bacteria have really cool tools, so to speak, that let them do really fascinating things like stab cells and inject a little bit of poison or steal DNA from the environment. And while that's really cool and that can lead them to kill individual bacteria, can't really make a wound on a person just stabbing one bacteria at a time. So they often, they communicate with each other too. They can do things like send out tiny little messages into their environment, little molecular messages, and then they're all detecting how many of these messages are present at any given time. And uh, when enough of these messages are around, boom, they'll all stab at the same time, and then they can actually have a greater effect. That's called quorum sensing, if anyone's interested in learning more about it. Very interesting. So it sounds like even though bacteria can't talk to each other the way that people are talking to each other, they're still communicating, they're still working together for some, I don't know, similar goal. Absolutely, yep. They definitely communicate both with members of their own species and members of other species, even actually sometimes with members of different kingdoms of life with with animals or with plants very interesting so it sounds like they can they can have quite a big impact so why overall is it important to learn more about how these bacteria are interacting with each other well for lots of reasons so for example um, i mentioned the gut microbiome before and a lot of people are studying bacterial interactions so they can really figure out what ways bacteria are both causing health and causing harm to human hosts and how that might change when we add or remove different species of bacteria or facilitate the additional removal of those species of bacteria by things like changes in diet or addition of antibiotics. And so we need to understand how they're interacting so that we can understand things like the human gut. That's also true for if we want to, for example, amend bacteria to an agricultural field to try to prevent a uh, plant illness, um, we might need to know which bacteria are going to be able to defeat a plant pathogen while also being able to 
survive and thrive themselves in that agricultural environment, which may or may not be why they evolved. We also need to know it from an industrial perspective. People are, are trying to figure out ways of using groups or synthetic ecologies of bacteria to make really useful products for medicine and for other aspects of life. And then finally, if you like sci-fi, which I do, eventually we're going to want to learn how to keep ourselves humans alive indefinitely in space. And that's going to require really understanding how bacteria and other organisms interact so that we can have them filter our wastes and and convert carbon dioxide back into oxygen and basically keep us alive for another few billion years. Sure, sure. <laughs> That's all very interesting. It sounds like there's so many, I guess, applications for these bacteria or just places that they can live and thrive and maybe that we can take advantage of their <laughs> all their uh, capabilities. Yeah, and, and that is going, you know, we have just barely gotten to the tip of that iceberg. Even E. coli, which is the, the best known bacteria in the world, the lab rat of the bacterial world, we still don't understand what at least 30% of its genes do. And that number drops incredibly rapidly as we study other bacteria. So we don't even have a clue of all of the amazing and bizarre things that bacteria can do. And so it's going to be very exciting as we keep studying this. Awesome. Well, let's take a quick break and then we can get more into the research that you're conducting. Sounds great, Julia. Hey, everyone. Happy Wednesday. Thanks for listening today. I hope that you are enjoying my conversation with Jeremy. I had a lot of fun. I learned a lot. And I hope you'll tell someone about the podcast if you enjoyed this episode. You know, I wondered after saying it all this time why my Instagram and my Facebook handles were the same, but my Twitter handle was different. Twitter is at Hooked on Science, whereas Facebook and Instagram are at Hooked on Science Pod. And I investigated this week because I said, you know what, I'd like a little bit more continuity. And it turns out a Twitter handle can't be any longer than it is right now, so no continuity for me. But if you'd like to hear any updates on the podcast, as I just said, you can follow on Instagram and Facebook at Hooked on Science Pod or on Twitter at Hooked on Science. You know, something that I haven't been doing but I really should be doing is thanking the people who have recommended guests for me to have on the show. And today's guest was recommended by Lino. So I'll say thank you, Lino. I really appreciate you getting people to sign up with that co-host nomination form and getting them on the show. It's been really awesome. In the past, our Theology with Dr. Jason Smith episode, he was recommended to me by Reed, as well as Colin Bendig on Video Games and National Identity with Colin Bendig. So I'd like to thank Lino and Reed for all their help in getting people on the show, and I would like to invite all of you who may be interested in recommending someone or recommending yourself to... Find that co-host nomination form. It's on Facebook, pinned to the top of the page. Or if you don't feel like going to Facebook, you can send me an email at hookedonsciencepod at gmail.com, and I'll send that along to you. What else do we talk about during the break? Let's see. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, you should probably do that. Open your phone, 
open up your podcast app, hit that subscribe button. I would really appreciate it. This podcast is a part of my PhD research, as I mentioned every episode, and I will continue to mention every episode because it's important. And I want to make sure you know that by listening, you are contributing to scientific research. And at some point, probably in the fall, I'll be putting out a survey to get some information about why you listen, things like that. Like many podcasters in this time, I have resorted to recording in my closet because people, construction people for the apartment that I live in, have begun building scaffolding outside the window and it is made up of a lot of metal pipes and sometimes it just sounds like they're standing there and banging them together. So if you can hear any construction noises in the background, I apologize. I am not doing any sort of a metal projects. It is merely the outside and hopefully by the time that I record next time, there will not be any scaffolding being built outside or being taken down or being moved around or what have you. Show episodes come out every two weeks on Wednesday, so I will see you on, uh, I have no idea what day. Let's see very quickly what day that will be. I will see you on July 29th. Ooh, that's exciting. Three episodes in one month. And with that, let's get back to the episode. So Jeremy, before the break, you were talking about bacteria and the interactions between them and how that can affect organisms and ecosystems at a large level. So let's bring it back to your research. What is the objective of the research that you conduct? The research that I'm uh, doing right now just started about a year ago, and it's really exciting because we're me and collaborators both at the University of Minnesota and at the University of Manchester, we're trying to study a specific group of bacteria called Streptomyces bacteria, which are some of the coolest bacteria around, I think. So, for example, Julia, do you know what dirt smells like? Yeah, I my research is mainly in agriculture when I'm not podcasting, so I have an up-close-and-personal dirt experience. So that smell, that wonderful dirt smell, um, well, I, I think it's usually wonderful, is actually the smell of a chemical made by these Streptomyces bacteria. It's called geosmin, and what people think of as the dirt smell is really this bacterial smell. So that's just one of the ways that they're so cool. These streptomyces also are some of the most prolific antibiotic creators that we know about. And they use that to help kill the bacteria and trace signals to each other as well. But the reason we're studying them is because they're also really important in agriculture. And so there are many different kinds of Streptomyces bacteria. That's a pretty large group. And some of them are plant pathogens, but then also many others seem to protect plants against pathogens in some way. And what we're trying to do is figure out how we can group different kinds of Streptomyces bacteria that seem like they have some sort of beneficial effect to create sort of the most synergistic, most beneficial effect when we put them out there. And that means that we have to study how they interact and, and learn which kinds are going to get along with each other or not, if we can feed them certain things to, to help with their coexistence, or even questions like, do, is it better if they're fighting with each other? Does that make them better at fighting off another pathogen 
or not? And so those are the sorts of questions that we're trying to specifically ask. Okay, wow. Yeah, that is a, again, a, a lot of questions and a lot of potential outcomes for uh, what might be beneficial. So when you're looking at these interactions, obviously bacteria are very, very small. How do you measure or gauge that they're even interacting? Right. Exactly. Oftentimes you can't really watch this in action because even if you put them under a microscope, it's often very difficult to tell them apart. You can't always make them colorful like you can some lab bacteria. Um, and even if you could, that might not be the environment that you want to learn how they're, where they're interacting. And so we do it a couple of different ways. Some people that, work, that are actually putting the real bacteria together will look for little bits of their DNA, which are unique to their kind, and see if they find more of that DNA or less of that DNA to learn if one of those species is growing in population or decreasing in population. We can also see which genes they have turned on um, using some cool molecular tools to see if different genes get turned on when we mix them together versus when we don't mix them to see if you know they're increasing the the amount of stabbiness or the amount of antibacterial production. Well, what I actually do is sort of go the other way. And I use a sort of general collection of tools called systems biology or systems ecology, where we try to predict how they're going to interact just by starting with the actual genomes, the DNA of the different bacteria. We can look through a species genome, all of their genes, and say, okay, this bacteria can eat glucose. It can fix nitrogen from atmospheric nitrogen into a usable form. It can grow in the absence of oxygen, and we can catalog all of these things in a mathematical way and use it to predict directly from the genome without doing any measurements how much these bacteria might grow in a given environment, what sort of waste products they might excrete, which then other bacteria could use, and therefore how, how they may compete or cooperate together in varying environments. And so a lot of my work is trying to make these basic predictions directly from DNA, from genome information, and then the experimentalists will test them both in the lab and out in agricultural fields. Okay, so it sounds like you're operating more in the theoretical realm, so to speak, even though you're working with mm -hmm. actual genome data. So how do you learn from this? I'll, I'll set up in the computer environments that are as similar as I can to actual testable environments. And so I will put these different bacteria with their mathematical representations into an environment of the computer that, for example, has the different chemicals that we know a plant root will make at a certain point in its life. And we will set up different simulations that have one or mixtures of the different species predict how in the presence or absence of these different species you may or may not get species thriving or dying off and then i can give those predictions to the people that work in the lab and they can do those measurements either by looking at the abundance of species dna after experiments have been done or i can even make predictions about what genes are going to be functioning and what which ones aren't and they can examine some of that as well with some cool tools that allow you to look at things like RNA or protein abundance. Okay, so then how are you translating this information to the ecosystem at large, mm -hmm. to these scientists, researchers that are you know, doing the actual physical experiments? It's an iterative process. So 
we'll make some predictions, but since we're basing it right off of the genomes, you know, that that is super cool to be able to predict how a whole species is going to interact just by knowing the sequence of DNA. But because it's a pretty new tool, oftentimes those predictions are wrong. And so then I'll say, hey, I think this Streptomyces is going to take over an ecosystem when there's this other Streptomyces. And then they'll go and test that. And they'll say, no, you were wrong. They both grew equally well. And then I'll have to look at the way that I have converted that genomic information into a mathematical representation to see what is likely to have gone wrong in that process. And in doing so, we get better at our ability to predict phenotype, what a species can do from genotype, from its DNA. Um, and then also then that's going to lead us to making better predictions. Okay, so it sounds like with each trial and error period, this prediction is getting better and better. That's the hope. Okay, definitely. You're talking about using this for plant roots, correct? Yeah, yeah. So in this case, we're mostly focused on really trying to protect uh, potatoes from, from a potato pest. Okay, so in practice, if you have these potatoes in the field, you have this information, this genetic information that you are able to glean and, you know, different levels of these Streptomyces bacteria... Would you be inserting these into the soil to try and get the the beneficial results that you're looking for? Or is there another way that a researcher or even a, a farmer in the future would go about doing this? You've totally hit upon one of the ways that this could be applied. And that is by learning where there's going to be the potential for disease and by knowing what specific disease it is and by doing our sorts of predictive studies about what groups of bacteria might help prevent emergence of those diseases, we could, we, or, or eventually, you know, farmers will either coach their seeds or apply directly these kinds of bacteria to their farm plots. And, and that's also, you know, that is basically the same idea as when people take probiotics. They're hoping that they're going to achieve some useful function by changing the ecology of their gut microbiome by adding in new useful species into the gut. And just like in the gut microbiome, in an agricultural field, there's another possible way to, and that's using the idea of prebiotics. So not necessarily adding the useful species. Maybe they're already there, but they're just not thriving. So a different way of improving their chance of success might be by adding specific food sources, specific nutrients, which will target your beneficial bacteria either in the farm or in your gut, to make them thrive and help them be better able to fight off whatever pathogen you're considering. Oh, that's very cool. Uh, kind of like a probiotic for your probiotic. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So do you have any preliminary results from what you're working on that you'd like to share? I know you said you've only been doing this for about a year or so, but are there any promising results for potatoes at this time? You know, this particular project is so new that I, I now have functional uh, mathematical representations of these different Streptomyces bacteria, and I'm just now starting to make some predictions about how they're going to interact based upon their uh, DNA. So no, we don't have any stuff from this right now. Well, no problem. I look forward to hearing more about our super potatoes in the future, our super bacteria for potatoes. But do you have any takeaway points that you'd like to reiterate before we wrap up our conversation? I don't necessarily have any 
specific takeaways about my research, but I, I just love to emphasize how important science is and how sometimes it can seem like science projects are weird and don't really have any use, but oftentimes they do, especially if you think about them in the broader picture like ecology. So for example, I mentioned how some bacteria stab each other with little spears that they make out of their own bodies and inject poisons. And that sounds like a pointless factoid that researchers are studying. But after studying that sort of stuff, it helps us to understand how we might use that to really make human health better by either preventing that from happening or causing that to occur against bad bacteria. So, you know, it doesn't matter how out there the research might sound, probably still has something useful to give to humanity. Yes, I totally agree. And Jeremy, so if people want to learn more about your research, is there anywhere they can find more information? Sure, I'm terrible at social media. So unfortunately, the best place to get access to my research is to either go to the source, me, and I always am happy to respond uh, to people asking about my research, or you can look me up on Google Scholar and take a look at any of my papers. And if they're not available to you, I'd be happy to send it to you personally. Perfect. Well, Jeremy, thank you so much for joining me today. And I look forward to hearing more about the research you're doing in the future. Thank you for having me, Julia. It was a lot of fun. Welcome to the final fun fact of the episode. This week's fun fact comes from Zelda. And Zelda told me, did you know that the only marsupial found north of Mexico in North America is the opossum? And I didn't know that. So the next time you see an opossum, you can say, I know a fun fact about you. I don't know how often you come across opossums. I don't know if I have ever come across an opossum. Okay, maybe don't say that, but now you know. So, if you have a fun fact that you would like to submit and hear me try to talk about for more than one sentence, like I just did, you can send that to hookedonsciencepod at gmail.com, or you can tweet at me, you can DM me. I'm open to all avenues of communication. So get those fun facts in, and I will see you in two weeks. <laughs>